as human beings, we, we learn how to live and to think and to act by imitation. By imitation. Through our interactions with other people, usually through our parents first, and then teachers and friends later, and then mentors and others that we look up to, other people that we like and admire, we grow and we learn by imitating other people. This is obviously true in children. When you were somewhere around one year old, you began to use words. You didn't know what the alphabet was. You didn't know how to read. You didn't know what sentences were. But because you were around other people, you began to imitate them and were able to speak words because of imitation. And kids who grow up in America, they grow up learning to speak English because they are imitating everyone around them who's speaking English. There's no two-year-old in America who wakes up randomly speaking Chinese. They speak English because they are imitating those around them. We learn and we grow. We discover how to think and to act by imitating other people. And this isn't true just of little children. It's true throughout all of our lives. Parents, when your kids became teenagers, I just have recently become the parent of a teenager in the last year, we're always concerned about who our children are spending time with. Why? Because they imitate the people that they are spending time with. For all of us as adults, the way that we think and the way that we act is shaped very much by the people that we spend time with, by the entertainment that we consume, by people that we listen to on the radio, by our friends, and especially by people that we admire and look up to. Imitation is a powerful force in our lives, and most of the time we are very unaware of all of the ways that our daily actions, our speech, the way that we carry ourselves, our mannerisms, our actions, and our decisions, how much of those are influenced by the people around us, for better or for worse. And Paul understood this very well about human nature, about the importance and the power of imitation. Throughout this letter to the Philippians, he has encouraged the church to pay attention to who they are imitating. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul points to Jesus as the supreme example, as the one that we are to imitate. He tells us that our attitude should be the same as, should imitate the attitude of Jesus, who became a servant to us and died for us. And then he tells the church in Philippi that they have had people in their lives, he himself, Paul, as well as Timothy and Epaphroditus, who have modeled this Christ-like way in their community. And so he says, imitate me, imitate Timothy, imitate Epaphroditus. These are people who have followed the way of Jesus, so imitate them. And in our scripture today, Paul once again reminds us to follow the pattern set by him and by Timothy and Epaphroditus as they follow the pattern set by Christ. And the reason that Paul 
encourages them, challenges them for why it's important for them to pay attention to who they're imitating is because that there are other patterns to follow as well. And we need to make sure we are following the pattern of Christ. Paul tells us in our section today that there are two patterns. One of them leads to destruction, and one of them leads to life. I want to say to you today that the question for your life is not whether or not you will imitate, but who you will imitate. What pattern will you follow in your life? Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 through 21. Paul writes, Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. For as I have often told you before and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Amen? Amen. Paul says that we need to be intentional about imitating those who follow the pattern of Christ because there is another pattern that's available to us. There's another pattern that we can choose to imitate, and it's the pattern of those who are enemies of Christ. We can model our lives after Jesus and those who have modeled their lives after him, or we can model our lives after those who are enemies of of the cross of Christ. An enemy of the cross of Christ. That seems very extreme. Why would I want to follow the pattern? Why would I be tempted to follow the pattern of someone who is an enemy of Christ? When I read this, when I read this the first time this week, there was no way that I thought that I would be tempted to follow the pattern of the enemy of Christ. I know that there's times in my life where I can become lukewarm or, or, or distant, or maybe I'm not being a friend of the cross, but an enemy of the cross, that doesn't seem to me to be very tempting. But as I dug into these verses this week, I came to a very sobering and convicting conclusion about Paul's words here. The people that Paul is talking about that are enemies of the cross of Christ are people who profess Christ. Paul is not taking a cheap shot at the pagan world around him. When I first read this letter, this letter this week, these words this week, that's what I had in mind. That's what I assume, who I assumed Paul was talking about, but I'm convinced that's not who Paul is talking about here. Paul is talking here about people who claim to be Christians, but who do not live their lives according to the pattern of Jesus, who do not imitate Jesus. Why do I come to that conclusion? It's because Paul says that as he thinks about these people, he thinks about them with tears. 
Paul says that they are people who he weeps over. And this is not the way that Paul typically talks about outsiders. It's the way that he talks about people in the family of faith who have gone their own way. We see that in Corinthians and also in the book of Acts. That Paul weeps, his tears are reserved, it seems, for those who are or who believe that they are a part of the family of faith, but who have gone their own way. Of course, there are many outside of the church who live as enemies of the cross of Christ. There are plenty of patterns out there that we need to be careful not to follow. But Paul reminds us here that there are many in the church, many who may even believe that they are being faithful, whose lives are not patterned after the life of Jesus. And because they are not patterned after Jesus and the way of the cross, they have become enemies of the cross. Paul says that these are people who are on their way to destruction because rather than patterning their life after the life of Jesus and the way of the cross, they've lived their life according to another pattern. Their God is their stomach, their glory is their shame, and their mind is on earthly things. I'm reminded here of Jesus' parable, which gives us a very similar message, the parable of the sower of the seed. That some of the seed falls on ground that is near weeds and thorns. And the seed takes root and it begins to grow. And it begins to um, evidence the fact that it's going to be a, a good, thriving plant. But Jesus says that the seed was, was choked out by the thorns around them. And later when he's telling his disciples what this parable meant, he says that that seed is like people who first hear the word of God and who come to faith but their lives are choked out. Their faith is choked out by the cares and concerns of this world. Their mind begins to become focused on earthly things. Friends, it is possible for us. It's possible for us to be believers in Jesus who slowly over time, like the, the frog in the boiling kettle, moment by moment, slowly, day by day, become motivated by the desires of our flesh for the glory and approval of people, for our mind to begin to be fixed on earthly things, and for all of that to have this very thin veneer of Jesus over the top of it all. To have just enough Jesus to think that we're doing okay, but to wake up and realize that over time, our lives are no longer patterned after the life of Jesus. And Paul sums up the enemies of the cross as people whose mind is on earthly things. Paul doesn't say that their mind is on evil things. Paul doesn't say that their mind is on sinful things. Paul doesn't say that their mind is on wicked things. He says that their mind is on earthly things. Their attention is fixed on this worldly concerns. This was convicting to me this week. I've considered about the way that I spend my time and my energy. 
When we put it like this, I think that all of us need to consider today whether we might be, in Paul's mind, in the category of an enemy of the cross of Christ. Because our life is being patterned by the way of this world, and our mind is primarily on earthly things. People are enemies of the cross of Christ, are people who believe in Jesus, who believe that they can have a Jesus without the cross. Believe that they can follow Jesus without picking up their own cross. Who believe that they can have Jesus and have the world too. People who can participate in the glory of the resurrection of Jesus, but not also share in his sufferings. Do you remember the story in in the Gospels when, when Peter tried to get Jesus to stop talking about the cross? Do you remember that story? Peter pulls Jesus aside and he says, stop talking about all this cross stuff. And Jesus says to him, what? Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. Now, this moment came at a point in Jesus's ministry where things were going really, really well from a worldly perspective. Lots of people were following Jesus. He had recently miraculously fed 5,000 people and then 4,000 people. All sorts of miracles were happening, and it must have been the very height of the disciples' excitement about who Jesus was. They've bet on the right horse. They've discovered the Messiah. This is the one who is going to finally set us free from the Romans. How can he not be? Look at all the things that he's doing. And then Jesus, here at the pinnacle of earthly success in his ministry, begins to tell the disciples about how he is going to go to Jerusalem, how he is going to be betrayed by the religious leaders and handed over to the Romans to be crucified. So he tells them not that he's going to Jerusalem to defeat the enemies, but to be defeated by the enemies. And Peter says, Lord, stop talking like that. And Jesus said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. Do you remember what the next statement is? You do not have in mind the things of God but the things of men. Peter's mind was set on earthly things. And because of that, there was no place for a cross. Peter, in this moment, was an enemy of the cross, not because he was contemplating evil things, In fact, Peter likely had a lot of very good things on his mind, protecting the safety of his friend, the hope of the redemption of his people Israel that he had prayed for his whole life as a good Jew. His mind, though, was on earthly things. And in that moment, he became an enemy of Jesus, the Satan, an enemy of the cross. Paul says, many are enemies of the cross, opposed to the way of the cross. Instead, their God is their belly, pleasures, comfort, and their glory is in their shame. 
In other words, that their sense of well-being and satisfaction and success in approval and security and wealth, they don't realize that all of that can vanish in a moment and that when we stand in judgment, it will all go away. Many are enemies of the cross of Christ, enemies to the idea that the life of following Jesus is a call to participation in his suffering, of self-denial, of service to others, of concern for the poor and the vulnerable. Enemies of the cross are people who have made their home here, who have made themselves citizens here. The concerns and desires of this life, maybe slowly uh, over time, have eventually gained their allegiance. And so Paul gives, calls us to give our allegiance to a different place. Verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to learn the secret of our citizenship, the secret of where and to whom we belong. If your citizenship is only, if your imagination of where you belong comes only from things in this life, if your sense of belonging and hope, if your sense of comfort and peace comes from acquiring things of this world, then the threat of losing them is going to be really, really painful and difficult, and you will do everything you can to hold on to it. But when we are citizens of heaven, we know that all the treasure and the peace that really matter is gained because we belong to a different place. We have treasure and peace that cannot be taken away from us. It is held in a place where moth and rust cannot destroy and where no thief can find to break in and steal. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly wait for a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, the King. Citizens of heaven give their attention, their concern to a different place, and they give their allegiance to a King that is coming. Friends, the world offers much to us, especially those of us who live in the United States. There is a lot of comfort available here, a lot of safety and security and privilege and fun. Full bellies are available to us here. Access to all sorts of pleasure at our fingertips. If we just will imitate the world, then we can have all of it. It's tempting simply to become a part of the world and enjoy everything that this world has to offer and then to hope that our half-hearted loyalty to Jesus will be enough to get us to heaven after we die. But that is not the attitude, the way of those who are citizens of heaven. It is the way of enemies of the cross. The way of the citizens of heaven is the way of self-sacrifice, of love for neighbor, of concern for the poor and the vulnerable. It's the way of the cross, of self-denial, of considering others better than ourselves, becoming a servant to others. As James says, that pure and undefiled religion is this, to care for orphans and widows in their distress. 
and to keep ourselves from being defiled by the world. Listen to this description of citizens of heaven in the book of Hebrews chapter 10. The writer says this, Remember those earlier days after you had received the light, when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. It's a very un-American thing to say. Because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So, do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. What kind of people are able to do this? To be people who are able to endure suffering and to stand with others who suffer. People who joyfully accept the confiscation of their property. It's people who have given their attentions and their concerns to a heavenly place and to the king who comes from that place. And it's also to a people who share in the hope of a resurrection that's to come. Verse 21. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. People who live in the way described in Hebrews chapter 10 are people who know that these bodies that we have are frail and lowly and temporary with actually a very small capacity to hold much pleasure or joy. Citizens of heaven know that there are pleasures here are very, very weak and very short-lived and they can be taken away in a moment. And so we are waiting for the return of Jesus who, when he comes, by the same power that raised him from the dead, is also going to raise me and you from the dead and give us glorious bodies that have the capacity to be full and overflowing with joy and peace and grace and the love of God. Here's a, another wonderful truth about being a citizen of heaven. Being a citizen of heaven does not, as the old saying go, make us so heavenly-minded that we're no earthly good. Being a citizen of heaven, giving our attention to the concerns of heaven, giving our loyalty to a different king, is actually a calling to seek the good and the well-being of the earthly city that we're a part of. Tim Keller, a pastor in New York, often says that the citizens of heaven are the very best residents of the earthly city. Because being a citizen of heaven actually sets us free to be truly self-giving and sacrificial because we know that our ultimate treasure and hope are actually safe somewhere else. Let me give an illustration. The Cochrane home is three blocks away from Lakeside Park. 
Lakeside Park is a beautiful park here in our city. It's really the crown jewel of the parks in Fort Wayne. Beautiful rose gardens, pools, a pond with a fountain, walking trails, old oak trees, and places for kids to play. It's a beautiful park. A park is meant to be visited and enjoyed, but it's not meant to be lived in. When you are at the park, you're supposed to enjoy it. You're supposed to love it, to take care of it, to pick up the litter that's on the ground. And if there's a kid that falls, you're to help them and make sure they're cared for. But eventually, you leave the park because the park's not your home. You're there to enjoy it, to be a part of it, to contribute to the well-being of it. But you don't make it your own. The worst users of a park are the people who try to live there and make it their own. A park is a great place to visit, but if you try to make it your home, you make it a really bad place for you and for everyone else. You make a mess of it. You become territorial, become possessive of it. You become possessive of the place. Those of us who know we are citizens of heaven are the very best citizens of our city and our earthly country because we know that we have a different home waiting for us and that this city is not our final home. We don't have to possess it. We don't have to own it. We can hold it loosely. When this world becomes our ultimate home, when the things of this world become all that their art is to live for, we possess them, we grab hold of them, we hold tightly to them, we get scared if we lose them. But when we are living for our future, our hands can be open to use this world and to enjoy our life in this world in a way that's open to others in a way that we're ready to share and to be generous and to use whatever power or privilege or resource that I've been given, we're able to give it away because it's not the only thing that there is. Those who are only citizens of this world without hope of anything more or anything else that have this earthbound vision of reality end up making a mess of it because they become possessive of it. To lose it would be to lose everything. But we know that when we lose this life, we end up gaining everything. So being a citizen of heaven makes us the very best residents here on earth. The church is called to live in a different way, to know that our citizenship is in heaven, So that anything we possess here, we possess as if not possessing it. Paul says that in Corinthians. That we possess things as if not possessing them. We own them as if not owning them. We know that we are only stewards. Stewards of what we have been given. And so the way that we use them, the things that we've been given, our time and our energy and our money and our passions, is to be stewarded for the sake of our heavenly citizenship and for the king that we have given our allegiance to. I read this quote this past week in one of my old sermons, and so I don't know if I came up with it myself or if I read it someplace else, but it's really good, and I'm going to take credit for it today. The church, what did you say, Sage? 
As if not possessed yet. That's right. I offer this to you as a steward. The church is the only organization in the world that exists and lives for the benefit of its non-members. The church is the only organization in the world that exists and lives for the benefit of its non-members. And the reason that we can say that and live that way is because we are called to imitate Jesus. We are following the pattern of Jesus, our King, who lived his whole life for the benefit of others, who emptied himself of everything, who laid down his life all the way to the cross. The way of the cross is the pattern we are given to follow. It is the pattern that Jesus set for us. It is the pattern that Paul passed down, and it is the pattern that we are challenged to follow today in a world where it is very, very easy to imitate the world and to gain and to so gain the things that it offers. There is so much pleasure and comfort and peace and safety and security in our country, and all of those are good things. But if those good things gain our allegiance, our ultimate attention, what we are grasping after, we then become an enemy of the cross of Christ because our mind becomes fixed on those earthly things. So friends, I think that this word today is a moment for us to sit in silence for a moment and just reflect on what parts of our lives are we maybe standing as enemies of the cross not because we're thinking about evil things, sinful things, wicked things, but simply because our mind and our attention is firmly set on earthly things. So, Lord, would you show us, would you show us the areas of our life where we need to surrender our allegiance to those things and give our allegiance more fully to you? Show us those things in our life that we are holding and grasping onto and seeking to possess rather than to be stewards who, who give away and to use for your, your good. But would you show us that right now? God, we thank you for uh, this word today from inspired by your spirit through the words of Paul. God, I pray that they would speak, that they would find the right place in our heart. Lord, I pray against the enemy who would want to come in and condemn the saints today. But Lord, that your spirit would bring the right conviction to our hearts. So that rather than walking in shame, that we will walk in freedom as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Lord, I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.